Luke 15, 11 to 32, page 1625 of the Red Bibles. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks for reading, Darcy. And uh, great to be with you this morning. Well done for making it here in the blustery, wet weather. Uh, we are in the final week of our five-week series, looking at this parable of the prodigal son. And is this working? Just about. Um, we've been thinking about the grace of God, haven't we? And how God's grace shapes us as individuals and as a community. And in this final week, we're looking at the theme of sonship what it means to be a son of God, what it means to be a community of sons. This story, if nothing else, is all about family, all about the relationship of father and son. Uh, if you're looking in on the Christian faith, then this is really the heart of what it means. What it means to be a Christian is not just someone who believes in God, but what it means to be a Christian is to be a child of God, to be adopted by God, to know him as father. And so we're thinking this morning about what it means to be a child, a son, what it means to be a community of sons. If you're, if you're, if you're a 
female person here, and this talk of sonship um, is making you uh, nervous. I will explain that. So, uh, four headings this morning. Think about sonship, the, the nature of sonship, the cost of sonship, the privilege of sonship, and the community of sonship. So firstly, the nature of sonship. What does it mean to be a son? In Jesus' day, to be a son meant responsibility. It meant that you had a responsibility to the family. To be a son, especially an oldest son, meant you had a job. You had a responsibility to keep the family together. Sons would inherit the estate. Daughters got nothing. Now, I'm not um, defending that, but you need to understand the culture. Sons inherited not a pile of cash. They inherited the family land and property so that they could carry on the family business, so that they could fulfill their responsibility and carry on the family name. In Galatians chapter 4, it says this. The Apostle Paul says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is a great uh, Christmas passage, isn't it? Like, why did the Son of God become a man? Well, so that we might become sons of God. This is the greatest blessing of the gospel, that we are adopted and receive the full rights of being sons of God. We're not just forgiven, we are adopted by God. God isn't just our king, he's our dad, and we're his sons. And what Paul is saying is that both men and women receive this new status as sons. Some people get offended that women are said to be sons, and some translate their sons and daughters. And that's appropriate in many cases to make it clear that when Paul talks about brothers in Christ, he's talking about brothers and sisters. But here he's saying something particular. He's writing into a context, and he's, he's saying to women uh, that... Although in the first century, in a first century family, you would not inherit, in God's family you do. You are just as much a part of the family. You have the same rights and the same responsibilities. So if you are a, a female child of God, are you a son or a daughter? Well, you can call yourself a daughter. That's right and appropriate. But you're a daughter who has the full rights of sonship. So that's the nature of sonship. Secondly, the cost. The cost of sonship. What did it cost for this wayward younger son to be brought back into the family? What we need to realize is that what this younger son does means that he has lost his status as a son in the family. When he says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, he is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you, I don't love you, I just want your stuff. I wish you would get out of the way so I can get my hands on my inheritance. And when he takes his wealth and heads off to chart his own course, he is completely abandoning his responsibility to the family. He has lost his place as a son. I mean, that's what the son himself says, isn't it? When he comes back, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And the father even says, this son of mine was dead. Now, when he says that, he's not just saying that he feared his son had died. He's saying that his life as a son in the family was dead. The relationship had been completely broken. And yet, the father welcomes him back in. As we've seen in previous weeks, he forgives his son. He refuses to let his son try and earn his way back. But he welcomes him freely and immediately. A robe, a ring, a feast. This son of mine was dead, but now he is alive again. He's a son again. He's back in the family. He has the full rights of being a son once more. Do you see what, what the father does for his son is a really big deal. He's not just saying, you know, don't worry about the things that you've done. Come and have a bite to eat. No, this son was lost to the family. In a very real sense, he was not a son. And the father is reinstating him. It's not dissimilar to the father going out and adopting a complete stranger into his family. That's the magnitude of what the father's doing here. And actually, it's even more than that. Because a complete stranger would be neutral, wouldn't they? But this son is not neutral. This son has offended and shamed his father as deeply as it's possible for him to do. And yet, the father is filled with compassion for him and gives him, bears the cost, bears the cost to bring him back in and give him the status as a son once more. It is a beautiful picture of salvation. We are the prodigal. We've rejected God in our different ways. We've treated him shamefully. We've grieved his heart. We're estranged from him, left to ourselves. We're away from home, orphans in the world. But like the father in this story, God reaches out to us, embraces us, bears the cost to forgive us, and adopt us and give us the full rights of sons. Now the Bible is clear that salvation can only occur when atonement has been made, when a price has been paid to deal with our guilt. But in this story it doesn't look on the surface as if there's any price being paid, any atonement being made for the son to come back in. And some people say, ha, you see, God doesn't need atonement. He just forgives freely. He just loves freely. But that is to miss one of the most wonderful things that this story points us to. Think about the three stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15. There's the story of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Uh, in the first, uh, a sheep is lost and someone goes out to search for the sheep and to bring it back. In the second story, a, a coin is lost and, and the woman turns her house upside down to search for the lost coin and find it. In the th third story, there's a lost son, but no one goes out to look for him, to search for him, to bring him back. And it seems that Jesus is deliberately putting this story last so that we ask the question, well, who should have gone? Who should have gone out to search for this lost son and bring him home? And the answer for anyone in the culture of the day was obvious. The older brother should have gone. 
He was the one with the primary responsibility to keep the family together. He's the one who should have taken on the task and borne the cost to bring his younger brother home. There's a true story about a young soldier who was missing in action during the Vietnam War. His family in America received the news that he was missing. They were obviously concerned and grieved, and as time went on, their hope of him being found grew smaller and smaller. Finally, his older brother flew out from America to Vietnam and went right into the jungles to look for him. Went to the most extreme danger areas to search for his younger brother. And it's said that he, he was never harmed because both sides so respected what he was doing. Some called him simply the brother. That's what a true older brother would have done. That's what the older brother in Jesus' story should have done. He should have said to his father, Father, my younger brother has played the fool. He's abandoned the family. He's lost. But I love him. And so I'm going to take on the responsibility to go and find him. And if I can bring him home, then I'll, I'll do that. I'll bear the cost at my expense. That's the key to really understanding this story. At the end of the parable, when the father says to the older son, everything I have is yours, he's speaking the literal truth. You know, there were two sons in the family. The younger son's taken his share of the inheritance. Everything else that's left belongs to the older brother. He stands to inherit everything. Every robe, every ring, every fattened calf. And so the only way the younger brother can be brought back into the family is at the expense of the older brother. The younger son's reinstatement was utterly free for him, but it was at the older brother's expense. In this story, the younger son has an older brother who complains bitterly about that cost. But in our story, we don't. For God the Father to bring us back into his family, it can only happen at the expense of our older brother. What kind of older brother would we need? Not just one who comes from America to Vietnam, but one who comes from heaven to earth. Not just one who risks his life to seek us out, but one who gives his life willingly in sacrifice. Not just one who bears the finite cost of a robe and a ring and a calf, one who's willing to pay the infinite debt of our sin. Jesus Christ is your older brother, I wonder how much you think about that. He's the one who willingly came and sought you out and bore the cost to bring you home. He was stripped naked on the cross so we could be clothed in a royal robe. He was shamed and humiliated on the cross so we could be honored in the family of God. He, was, he drank the cup of suffering so we could drink the cup of celebration. He was condemned so we could be kissed. He was forsaken so that we would always know the Father's embrace. We have an older brother, the perfect older brother. He's the true son of the Father, yet he was treated like a rebel so that we rebels could be treated as sons. Thirdly, what about the privileges? of sonship. I'm going to mention four things. 
four great privileges of being children of God. First, the extraordinary value. All people everywhere have inherent worth and value because they're made in the image of God. But for those who believe in Jesus, who know that they've been adopted into God's family at the cost of his son's life, well, we know that we have extraordinary value. You may not feel loved and valued by an earthly father. You may have a father who neglected you or even abandoned you. That may be your story. But in Jesus you have a new story. For you have a father in heaven who cannot love you more than he does. If you struggle to believe that God the Father loves you, as I often do, please meditate on this story. Know that when your father looks on you, his heart is filled with compassion. And he runs to you and embraces you and he kisses you. He delights over you. He says to you what he said to Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. You know, I've got those words engraved on a, a ring to remind me of that truth. So extraordinary value. Secondly, deep security. But being a son of God isn't something that's based on our performance. It's not something that we need to earn. It's an identity that we're given. I think we're all naturally like the younger brother. We want to earn our way. I'll try my best. We say, I'll, I'll read my Bible. I'll say my prayers. I'll keep the rules. And maybe someday God will take me to heaven. But our father will have none of it. He adopts us freely as his sons. When you believe in Jesus, you get the full rights of sonship just like that. And it's totally secure. You know, the hired worker is like an employee. And when you're an employee, you're always trying to earn your boss's approval, keep their favor. If you fail your employer, you get fired. Even with a brilliant employment contract, there's no ultimate security in being an employee. It's all dependent on your performance. But if you're a child, well then you're secure. It's something you can rest in, no matter how you're feeling, no matter how you're performing. Deep security. Thirdly, intimate access. Uh, I wonder if you've seen this picture of um, President Kennedy sitting at his desk in the Oval Office and below the desk is his son, John Jr. It brilliantly captures this idea of how a child has intimate access. Your dad may be the President of the United States, but if you're a child, then you have access even when no one else can get through. I mean, just think how likely it would be for you to uh, head to London and uh, you know, call up the Queen. I hear it's your jubilee. I'd love to come and give you a personal kind of congratulations. I don't think you're going to get in. But children, the children of monarchs, the children of presidents, they have immediate intimate access, don't they? And so it is for you and for me. We have immediate access to our Father in heaven, the King of kings the ruler of the world. Today, as we've been reminded, is Pentecost Sunday. We remember, we celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at that passage again from Galatians. It tells us that because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You see, part of what the Holy Spirit does is prompt us. He, he 
reminds us, assures us of our identity, and he prompts us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Just like a toddler's first word might be, Daddy. So the Spirit prompts us to speak to God, Abba, Dad. Uh, I've mentioned in previous weeks I've been reading Dane Ortland's uh, great book, Deeper. And this week I was reading a chapter in which he says this. If we do not pray, we do not believe God is an actual person. It's quite a profound and challenging thing, isn't it? If we do not pray, we do not believe God is an actual person. We may say we do, but we don't really. If we do not pray, we actually think he's an impersonal force of some kind, a kind of platonic ideal, distant and removed, powerful but abstract. We don't view him as a father. See, sonship is a legal status. It's something you have regardless of your performance. But in prayer, you, you take that new identity and you live it out. If God is my father, then I have intimate access to him. I, my heart cries out, Abba. I want to spend time with him, enjoy his presence, being with my dad. Finally, future hope. Jesus says that as children of God, we stand to inherit the world. And not just the world as it currently is, but a perfectly restored creation. I don't know about you, I reckon this world's pretty amazing. And yet the Bible tells us it's, it's fallen, it's subjected to futility and decay. Just imagine what it's going to be like when it's liberated and set free and perfected. That is your inheritance and mine. I don't know what kind of earthly inheritance you're likely to receive. My, um, I've, I've mentioned this before, but some of you may not see it. Um, my extended family used to own this property. Can we get there? Yes. It's called Outer Shore Hall. It's up in the Yorkshire Dales. It's an amazing, it's an amazing manor house. It's recently been renovated, eight bedrooms. I haven't got pictures of everything, like sumptuous living room, drawing room, library, basement games room. It's got an indoor pool. It's got a sauna. Going slowly through the photos. Um, I just want to show you. There's the pool, very nice. This, this is the photo that Darcy got most excited about. She's like, it's like Downton Abbey. Uh, now in this photo, can you see on the wall there's a crest? Oh, let's go back. There we go. Go back. There. That is the Wood family crest. It's still there on the wall, but it doesn't belong to our family anymore. Um, now, if my great uncle had not sold it, and if I didn't have quite so many cousins, I could have inherited this place. It <laughs> could have been my home. Now the only way I'm going to get to spend any time there is if I pay like $5,000 for a two-night stay. But if we are children of God, our inheritance makes Outer Shore Hall look like a broken-down tent. We live in uncertain times, but this is saying no matter what financial mistakes you make, no matter what the stock market does tomorrow, it doesn't matter. You have an enormous 
certain inheritance coming to you. Future hope. So those are the privileges of sonship. Can we get out of these photos? Um, extraordinary value and deep security and intimate access and certain future hope. Finally, let's think about the community created by sonship. If, if we could be people who really grasp hold of this identity, what sort of community would we be? Well, we'd be a family, wouldn't we? What it means to be a family is something we've, we've thought about quite a lot here at Barney's. Let me mention just two things this morning that come out from this story. Firstly, mutual responsibility. If we're sons, then we all have a responsibility to the family, to keep the family together. We've got a responsibility to one another. I need you to encourage me, to remind me of the gospel, to keep me from going astray. And I need to be honest with you about my struggles and weaknesses. A church is not just a religious club, it's a family. And if that's true, then we won't just come on Sundays and have a quick chat after the service. We'll be people immersed in each other's lives, taking responsibility for one another. Secondly, we'll be a community of sacrificial love. We have an older brother who has given up everything to seek us out, to seek our good. And now, as brothers and sisters in God's family who've experienced that amazing love of Jesus, we're to reflect that love for one another. In 1 John 3, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do people look at Barney's and see that kind of love? I think, to a large degree, they do. Do they see a love that doesn't make sense without the gospel? Yeah. But let's keep growing in it. Currently in our community, there are many people with real needs. And it's wonderful. It's really encouraging seeing the way many people are demonstrating this kind of sacrificial love to meet those needs. Let me just encourage you to keep going in that. To keep reminding yourself of the amazing love you've received. Reminding yourself of the privileged identity that you have as children of God. And the bond that we have as brothers and sisters in God's family. Let me finish with this story. Ernest Gordon was a British soldier in World War II, captured by the Japanese and made to work on a railroad that was being built alongside the River Kwai. Conditions were awful. Between one and 2,000 people died for every five miles of the railroad built. Gordon writes in his memoirs, death was everywhere. And as conditions worsened, lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Existence had become so miserable that nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the law of the jungle. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. Everyone was his own keeper. All the restraints of morality were gone. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was found to be missing at the end of the day. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced immediately or else. And when no one in the squadron confessed to having taken it, he got out his rifle and threatened to kill every one of them on the spot. Suddenly one man stepped forward. 
I took it, he said. The officer put down the rifle, picked up a shovel and beat the man to death. But at the second tool check, this time no shovel was missing. A mistake had been made. The news spread like wildfire through the camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. It had a huge effect. Gordon says, we began to treat each other like brothers. Death was still with us, but we were being slowly freed from its destructive grip. What had happened? The sacrificial love of one man turned the jungle into a family. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, what an amazing privilege it is to be able to say those words. We thank you for the amazing sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus, our older brother. How we love him for what he's done for us. And we thank you that that love has transforming power for us as individuals, for us as a community. Please, by your Spirit, help us to take hold of this identity, to take up this offer of adoption, to grasp hold of who we truly are, and that we would be a community characterized by this same kind of love. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.